Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And we're back with another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're kicking off something that I'm really excited about. It's going to get us all a bit heated, well, me especially, but universalism. Why is that going to get you heated, Josh? Well, because I like apologetics pretty much a lot. And this topic comes up in um, apologetic circles a lot. Um, whether you're talking to people who are in the faith, whether you're talking to people outside of the faith. Why? Because there are people within the Christian, that would claim themselves to be within the Christian faith that would claim that they claim to be universalists. Like, I know a popular one that I didn't hear the name of yesterday when I was looking a bunch of stuff up is uh, no disrespect to the man. And I'm not saying it to name drop him in a negative way. Richard Rohr. I know he's a big universalist. Who is Richard Rohr, Josh, for our listeners? Richard Rohr is a very Now cool. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna let you know that if I get any emails about not properly identifying universalists and misidentifying universalists, I will send them to you because you're name dropping already and we haven't even talked about what universalism is. That's correct. So, I mean, if we're going to throw down like that, well, no, ready, I'm, I'm just saying, ready like, to get smacked back. That's you know? fine. I'm, I'm ready to get hit. We should call this a smack back. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, he's a uh, he's a really popular minister in, I would say, more the like the liberal side of like a lot of Christianity, like liberal aspects of it, a lot of it. Like, I'm, I'm not saying anything negative about the man. I'm just saying like that's how he would probably identify. A lot of his own stuff. Oh, I thought he was a relatively devout Roman Catholic who subscribed to Vatican II. That's possible too. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and lay down a ground rule for our discussion. You can be a universalist and not be a liberal. Okay, accepted. Okay. Now, if... So what we're going to do now is we're going to go back and we're going to talk about what universalism is in relation to the other um, opinions and dogma that exists regarding the last things. We had this uh, topic come in as a request for us to discuss. It's been some time ago. We were asked to talk about universalism a while back. Um, And then I noticed shortly thereafter that the guys over at Warden Table dropped a, 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 an episode on uh, universalism, which I thought was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So if our listeners have not listened to that, you know, maybe you go listen to that for a second. We're not going to rehash what they were doing, uh, but I thought that was a good, a good idea here. So let me go ahead and, and contrast universalism or define it and then start giving some contrasting pictures. Universalism is the belief that at the end at the very, 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 very end, everything that has ever existed will be ultimately reconciled to God through Christ because of God's love. 
And the text of Scripture that is appealed to predominantly is from St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, that everything in heaven and on earth will be reconciled, that it has already been reconciled in Christ. Um, do you have that verse up, Josh? Is that what you're looking at? No? I was looking at a definition of universalism. Oh, okay. Well, this, this is where it comes. This is the proof text, is to go back and look at that passage. Um, and then that is read as the, the passage that defines the other passages in Scripture about ages and aeons, you know, age upon age, aeons. What, what, is the, what does aeon mean? What does eternity mean? Uh, because eternity and everlasting are two different words. They mean what was that reference things. in Ephesians? The reference is that Christ has reconciled everything in heaven on earth to the Father. So that's what's appealed to. And so, and then that's read in conjunction with Hebrews that he must reign. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's uh, there as well, that Christ must reign until all of his enemies are put underneath of his feet. And so he reigns. And then at the very, very, very end, even Lucifer will be reconciled to God. That hell is not everlasting. All right. Specifically, that reference is Ephesians 2. 16, but the paragraph starts in uh, 14. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and read that to us? Uh, the whole paragraph or just verse 16? Yeah, read uh, the paragraph. Um, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and reconciling both of them to God in one body through the cross by which he extinguished their hostility. Reconciling everything in heaven and on earth to the Father. That's universalism in a nutshell. Contrast. It's a very simple, uh, it's a very simple definition. It doesn't require a lot of nuance. Just ultimately love wins. At the very end, God's love being the predominant attribute of himself wins out and everything is reconciled back to himself. Within that definition, there are varieties of, of universalists who would say that hell exists, hell is real, and the suffering and the torment of the damned is real, it's just not everlasting. So, for example, you know, if you go with modern science, and we have some, si some listeners who would not accept this, and that's fine, but just bear with me for a minute. If the universe is legitimately 3.5 billion years old, we do not have any imagining capacity to legitimately understand the scope of how old the universe is. We can pretend, but I mean, that, that's so far beyond the pale of any kind of uh, conceptual experience for us. And so the universalist would say, could say something like this. Since the universe is 3.5 billion years old, Hell could be for 3.5 billion years. It can, it can have an everlasting effect because there's nothing comparable in natural experience that gives us the capacity to really understand just how old the universe is if things like the speed of light are constant and reflect the nature of, of the age of the universe. So they would be looking at the comparison to say 3.5 billion years, if that's how long hell and damnation last. That's how long it lasts, but it will end. 
it will end and God's love will, will win and everything will be reconciled back to God. Okay? That is essentially what universalism means. And universalism has that effect. Like, that's a true thing because Christ has reconciled everything to the Father. And it's just going to take the experience of being in prison, you know, hell, the, the, the suffering, the torment, the tortures for our sins that are not repented of, for the love of God to, through the fires of hell, to purge out everything until we are completely perfected and then able to come into God's presence. Think of it as like there's no hell in the, in the sense that many people think of it. Hell is more like a purgatory. Mm-hmm. And so it's a purgatory with a very, very, very long shelf life, but ultimately everybody's going to be with God in the new creation. Okay. Which is, think about it, kind of interesting. Because uh, a lot of these these guys like, oh, you you believe in purgatory or a period of purgation. And they're like, no, I believe that's what hell, you know, it's just funny because it's like they're in many ways rehashing the idea of purgation yeah. without actually yeah. a- accepting that that is what they're saying. The opposite of universalism is annihilationism. Mm-hmm. That's also, it's not making its rounds right now around many people uh, in the church. But there have been people in the church, people who've made a professing profession of faith in Christ. Uh, early Pentecostals may not Pentecostals may not know this, but Charles Parham, who was a principal uh, leader in the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in the, in the United States, Parham was an annihilationist. What is an annihilationist? They believe that the the damned, when they go to hell, are destroyed. They cease to exist. And they often, the, the folks who support that will often go back to passages in the Psalms about the wicked coming to an end. So that they take the passages about uh, the end to literally mean finality and the absence of existence. You, you cease to exist absolutely. Jehovah's Witnesses subscribe to that as well. So annihilationism is not... Uh, really a hot-button issue at present, but it has been throughout mm-hmm. different parts of Christian history. And I think what drives a lot of this is, one, what is our theology? You know, what is our, our understanding of God himself? Do we understand him to be vengeful and capricious? Do we understand him to be vindictive, that he's looking to destroy and create more destructive patterns? Is, like, somehow does he enjoy, you know, tormenting the wicked? Uh, the second thing we have to that, that has to be considered is what is the nature of hell? What is eternal punishment? So let me go ahead and address those two points. One, God is love, and God is light. Both of those are in First John, and John says in that little his first letter, he says that God is light first. There's no darkness in him, and God's premier attribute in Scripture is not love but holiness. Mm-hmm. He's the thrice holy. He's never called love, love, love. He's called holy, 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 which makes him so categorically distinct and above us that we cannot know him unless he reveals himself. Well, God doesn't have attributes in him that exist independently, right? They, it's not like he's an 80% love, 50% wrath on a Thursday, and then he's you know, 90% mercy on a Monday. That, he's not like that. He, he's uh, immutable. His nature and his character doesn't change. So he's always the thrice holy, 
and he's always love. And those attributes exist in him without confusion, without contradiction, without conflict. That's who he is. So then let's talk about hell for a second. What is hell? Well, all through the scriptures, when we did an episode on the five receptacles of souls. That's what, um, <laughs> what do we, we, that was uh, Sheol, yeah, was, yeah, was Sheol, the title yeah. of that yeah. podcast. Yeah. It's worth a listen. It was a good one. Yeah. Um, when we talk about hell as in the lake of fire, we're talking about the passages in the gospels where the Lord says, um, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he talks about it being forever, the everlasting, you know, um, the hell of fire, he says. And the reference to the worm and the reference to the fire, worms can't exist in fire naturally. So we, we automatically have to look at those passages and recognize that this is metaphor. And lake of fire is metaphor. The danger that we run into is that when people go to explain metaphor to a contemporary audience, they lessen the severity of the biblical metaphor for a contemporary metaphor that's not as bad. What is the worm, right? What is that in the midst of the fire? Why are they, why are they, what does the metaphor mean? What are they putting together? The worm is conscience. And so the conscience lives in this horrific eternal condition where the conscience is reminding the person in hell of all of the opportunities they had to do what was right and good, and they didn't do it. And it's not that they wish they could have done the good so they could enjoy heaven that keeps them in hell. It's that they hate that God wanted them to do the good, and they didn't do it. So they're, they're hating him, and they're hating themselves, and they're hating everybody else. It's the antithesis of love. It is the antithesis of light, which is why the Lord calls it outer darkness. So, the, and, and I think C.S. Lewis, with the metaphor he gives in The Great Divorce, captures this pretty powerfully, even contrasting the picture of going up into greater fullness. You know, so you, you uh, for those who haven't read The Great Divorce, I'd recommend you read it or listen to it on the audiobook. You know, it starts out with something that's akin to purgatory, right? Not medieval purgatory, but something that kind of captures more of the, the experience of the of the guy who's just died and he's walking in the underworld to get on a bus. And you don't know that at the beginning. So if you've not read it, my apologies. Uh, but it's an old book now. So, I mean, you should have, you should have seen it, <laughs> read it by now. Um, but the further you get into heaven, the higher up you go and the further in you go. And every time you go higher up and further in, it gets bigger. Heaven is always increasing. And Lewis's picture of, whole, of hell is always decreasing. And even as hell decreases and shrinks in its complexity, it increases in its severity. So for the, for the entirety of hell, for eternity, for the people in hell, they become less and less what God meant them to become. But they never cease to exist in the annihilation sense, nor are they ultimately reconciled in the universalist sense. It is a legitimate true hell. And there's the worm, because the worm, Lewis depicts this, I believe in one passage, he, he, there's a guy who's talking about Napoleon being in hell and how he does nothing but pace around his giant um, mansion, you know, in hell, complaining that 
this is all the fault of other people. He's so internally focused that, that that internal discussion of rage and hate and jealousy is running nonstop in him, and it only makes it worse forever. That's what's going on with the worm. The worm is often it's it's it's, it's an it is understood to be a reference to conscience, and so the conscience is damned and hates God that it's damned for doing what it wanted or for not getting what it wanted. And so many theologians, Orthodox theologians, have rightly said that if God opened up the gates of heaven to everybody in hell, they would shut the door in any way and stay in the dark. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, he had a quote. You were talking about him a few seconds, two seconds ago. He was saying that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the fire is a reference to torment. It's the fire of hell is not a purging fire. It's a punishing fire. There is a fiery expectation at the judgment seat that we have, which is where the principle of purgation comes for the New Testament believer, but without their getting into medieval purgatory and indulgences. That, that's much, much later. But the principle of the fiery judgment at the judgment seat, that, that, is, that is a different dynamic. Um, and Paul's talking about that in 1 Corinthians 3. So annihilationism and universalism are the opposite ends here. And in the middle, we have the Lord's teaching about the, the worm and the fire and the darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So here's the conflated pictures, the meta- metaphors that are all blending together to talk about this torment and how it goes on forever. Now, we're going to come back and talk about the history of universalism here in a minute. Uh, let me, let me, let me say this as, um, not as a caveat, but as something that's, un, that's undisclosed, that's unrevealed. The scripture doesn't talk about the speed of light. The scripture doesn't talk about many things that we know are true. So if you go into that realm of speculation regarding hell and you say something like, well, you know, back to this original point, opening point, one of the opening points about 13 and a half million, billion years. If God is electing 120,000 quadrillion years from now, that he will empty the lake of fire and reconcile everyone to himself, he has not revealed it. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not revealed it. And because that is not something that's revealed, we are responsible for maintaining and upholding what has been revealed. So if you get, it's not if, you get theologians who go into wild speculation because they're trying to engage in theodicy, the justification of God. They want to justify God because they're looking at the nature of God in such a way, and they say that nature of God, which is love, is not reconcilable to an eternal punishment. But Jesus is the one who preaches about hell more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. His first sermon was repent or perish. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, you sorry, that's what's the subtitle above it, my bad. Those those nuances are are important. And the universalists, most universalists, especially the ones that would fall into the Christian bracket that are orthodox on all their other doctrines, they would not deny perishing and they wouldn't deny damnation. They would just say that it's not forever. It's still a really long time. It's still terrible. And to say that somehow or another we shouldn't call people to repent, to return to the Lord, to escape it, is not worth it. 
you're that's not that's a that's a that's a character car, uh, caricature it's a caricature of what they're actually advocating this is where doctrine and whole uh, in the whole is much, is very important if there is the possibility in scripture that to get out of hell that hell is not eternal um then we are not just simply making a statement about the love of God, reconciling all things. We're making other statements about the justice of God. We're making other statements about the incarnation. We're making statements mm-hmm. about the power of redemption. We're making statements about the human will. And so when you start to look at these particular points, like all good theological issues, they don't exist by themselves. They're always connected to something else. So having said that, Let's jump back to the guy who's typically counted as the first universalist. If you don't mind, uh, just a, a quick comment. One of the things I know we've addressed this on the podcast is the hermeneutic principle when you're reading scripture, especially Jesus, is Jesus is perfect. And so you'll see sometimes in, in modern theologizing that essentially they're like, well, Jesus didn't. He didn't get it right here. This wasn't. The, right. This wasn't, and it's a it's a um, hermeneutic principle when you're reading through, and uh, a lot of the, the the character of God, especially the aspect of His wrath. Not that it's not perfectly revealed within His the New Testament, but the issues that many people will begin citing Old Testament texts and looking at that. So they might even say, "Well, Jesus had it right. That was perfect. That was good." But they'll look at the actions of God throughout the narrative of the Old Testament and be like, well, I think he kind of, he, he missed it. Or you see, like you were talking about the idea of reconciling the Lord to himself. Like, how is he all these things? And so it, it is a challenge. But when you're looking at the character of God and as it's revealed, either through narrative or explicitly revealed through his words, as he's speaking to his prophets, you can't approach it from the idea, well, God missed it on this one, or he's not perfect. When you're reading these texts, the hermeneutic principle is that God is perfect. God is good. He is all of, like He is all of these things at the same time, and when God does something, he doesn't do it imperfectly. He is perfect. And so the principles and the things that we, we gleam from the text, he is perfectly doing those things because he is perfect and he is good. And the universalist wouldn't deny that, which is why he will empty hell. So they have because, because they good. have they have issue with that, and I think that's one of the the key principles. Not to go into big too big picture of what we're talking about away from the history, but that's that's an issue we're seeing a lot with coming out of the liberal school of thought is we reflect our present idea of justice, goodness, proper wrath, and we we impose those on the text. And say, well, I have this definition of what is good. I have this definition of what is perfect. And that is, if, if the God of the Bible does not meet that, then I have to either justify it or I, ha- I have to find a way to reconcile these issues. William Law was a universalist. William Law was one of the, uh, the Anglican divines, and I'm fairly certain he's on our calendar. And Law uh, wrote on holiness and prayer and he started to get into some of the more mystical side of things you know towards the end of his his life some of the stuff he wrote was massively influential for the early methodists you know the wesleys and whitfield etc 
And Lowell believed in a universalism and believed in hell. So the idea that this is just a mis that it's just a mischaracterization of um, of origin, you know, the early church teacher mm-hmm. that that kind of that's not exactly the case because you do have various Eastern fathers who advocate for universalism. I mentioned I mentioned origin as as a church um, leader, but because he gets condemned a couple centuries after he's already died. Uh, origin is not reckoned in the same way as the other fathers, but Gregory of Nyssa, who was considered the father to the fathers, he was a universalist. He believed everything would be reconciled to God. Um, universalism, though, is condemned. The church doesn't uh, adopt it formally. The dogma is officially lit, uh, stated that hell is forever, that eternal punishment is, is everlasting. But that doesn't mean that it's the 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 oven is at the same temperature. So talking about like layers, Dante's Inferno kind of thing. Uh, to an extent, because you know the Lord talks about being beaten with many blows and being beaten with few. So there's there's degrees of punishment on the basis of what we did and didn't do, and then the way that those eternal punishments are. Uh, administered, they're not consistently the same, right? We don't we don't see that picture in scripture to think that you know being in the lake of fire means that there's a continual burning that you're you're accustomed to at all, at all times. And I think this is where we we can over literalize the metaphor that it doesn't have the severity in it anymore, and it doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. In the cases of guys like William Law. Origin, Gregory of Nyssa, um, and I'm told, so this would have to be verified. I just had a conversation with a guy about this this morning. The Mother Teresa was a universalist. Um, uh, Michael Ramsey looks like he may have leaned towards universalism. Um, oh, there was another one who's, who's pretty, pretty well respected. I'd have to go back and look it up. Um, but here's an example of somebody's private opinion their private interpretation that must not get in the way of the official teaching of the church in the same way that we would speak against annihilationism. Uh, no, that's, that's not true either. God doesn't make something and then unmake it in regarding uh, human nature. You know, part of being made in the image of God is that we exist everlastingly. And I think Lewis does a better job of depicting hell as being locked from the inside, Right. Because if your option is the new creation where it's light and love and joy and peace, you're not going to choose that. Because if that was what you were going to choose, you would have chose it in this era of probation when you were still embodied on the earth. You would have repented and served the Lord then. You won't do it in hell. John three eighteen through 21 does a really good job of that too. The Apostle John does. Talks about those who don't believe in the Son, they're condemned already. Right. Right. And it's like that whole concept that you're talking about is right there. Yeah, the wrath of God abides on them already. Um, so I, historically, universalism finds various advocates within it, but the church says no. The church says, no, this is not okay. We don't believe that. What I think, and this is why, this goes back to something I mentioned earlier, 
if someone holds to an opinion that's universalist, then we would say, well, that's that's heresy. That's an error. Of course. That that's that's wrong. But think about how all the people I just named, and would we look at them and say that they were not united to God, that they were not participating mm-hmm. in, in sanctifying grace, and that they are not numbered amongst the saints. And well, so I mean, th- this he- is where private judgment does not get in the way of what the teaching of the church is in the same way that we could look at annihilationism because I've got a, I've got a priest friend that I know uh, who is an annihilationist. He doesn't talk about it, so I'm not going to name him, but he and I have talked about it. He's an annihilationist. So how do you, how do you reconcile this? Well, let's go, let's, let's start looking at the metrics, right? I mean, I believe that the scripture teaches when the Lord talks about hell being forever, that that's what he means. That, it's not an anachronistic reading to read back into his words when he talks about forever, that it means forever. That ages means, in, in this regard, when he talks about the punishment, he's talking about that. That, that hell is forever. That, I know that's, maybe it sounds like I'm just beating the same symbol there, but it, that it's forever. But what hell is, is not always the same. I think that's equally in scripture. Okay. The people who adopt an opinion that universalism is what's going to happen, and they go back and they cite these particular fathers, that, that's, in a, that's part of the, the thing that we emphasize all the time. Vincent of Larens, his canon, it's not what one or two people think, no matter their saintly character. It's not even a matter of what a school of, of, of opinion is, even if that school of opinion lasts for a thousand years. What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all? And the majority consensus from the church is that hell is unending. And so if we find that to be a violation of our senses about what uh, internally, you know, and what we think about God himself, his nature, we have to go back and we've got to reanalyze what do we believe about God? Because he's not vindictive. And is it wrath that hell is forever? Yes. And if we think of God in, a, in anthropomorphic terms, terms, we think about God as a human being, then it doesn't make sense that he can be justice and mercy all the time. But we don't, we don't grasp that. And I think back to the passage from Ephesians with Paul, when Paul talks about everything, everything being reconciled to God in Christ, that Christ reconciles everything to God, that's everything that's in Jesus has been reconciled to God. Everything outside of Christ is not. And this is where the, the incarnation and then the sacraments as the expression, the ongoing manifestation, the, the ministry of, of giving us participation in the incarnation is the means of grace. That's how we're being saved. That's how we're being sanctified. So you take a guy like Origen or Gregory of Nyssa or William Law or Mother Teresa or uh, Michael Ramsey and, be, and some of them are hard to pin down because they won't say they don't believe hell is, is um, unending. They, they say things like, in the end, everything will be reconciled, like Julian of Norwich or something. They, they say stuff that, if you take it by itself, looks like universalism. So what you want to do is go and look at where do they talk about hell or everlasting punishment or something comparable in other passages to say, what do they say about that? And you read them together. 
that's what you've got to do for any thinker. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're, I'm, why I'm bringing up Paul again. Um, it's everything that's in Christ that's reconciled to God. Everything that's not in Christ is not reconciled to God. Therefore, we need to go and preach Christ. Yeah. We need to administer the sacraments. We need to bring everybody as, as much as we can to him. And then, and we'll, we'll do a little more roundtable discussion here in a minute. Then we have to talk about, or we should not talk about, we have to consider, we don't decide who's in Jesus and who's not in the uncommon, extraordinary way. Because typically, what drives universalism is this idea of what about the millions of people who have lived and never heard the gospel? How does God judge them? Does he send them all to hell? And if you take a, an extreme fundamentalist approach, you would say yes, because they, didn't have an, they did not have an evangelical conversion experience. That's not taught in Scripture either. You go back and start combing through the, prof, the prophets in the Old Testament. I mean... Look at God's covenant with Noah. The covenant that God gives Noah, which is for all of the Gentiles, is not the covenant he gives to Moses or to Abraham and Moses. It's different. The expectations for the Gentiles are different. So to say that all of the people before Christ who were outside of Israel were damned, that, that's, not what the new, that's not what the scripture says either. So judge not lest you be judged, the Lord says. So there is a, and, and that's a very true thing. We do not decide what he does in those extraordinary means. He is the judge. I'm thankful for that. Right. I wouldn't. Right. Phew, I wouldn't, I would not want that to be my job. I mean, I don't, I don't like that, you know, either. Like it's not a good spot to be in, but obviously like it's, it's hard to deal with. It's it's like that concept where people like want to basically take God's nature and make it okay. Well, if he was like us, he has to. Like it, it yeah. If he was like us, he has to what? Like he, well, he would have. Well, hell then wouldn't be eternal and all this other stuff. Like the implications of universalism, I think, is the biggest issue with it. For a universalist, the biggest implication of universalism is that Jesus' death was successful. But I can also understand what I'm trying to say is also it how it's called heresy. How? Because of how you're talking about how it affects the sacraments and stuff, right? Yeah, unpack it for us, man. Come on. And this is, I, this is why I can't. I'm not. A, I'm not a cool unpacker <laughs> like you. Okay, I can. I can take a lunch. I can enjoy it. I can make a pretty decent sandwich. <laughs> okay, okay, but I can't like unpack it and talk about the bread that came from Pennsylvania like you can. Yeah. Well, I here's what I mean by this, and, and I've alluded to it already. With universalism, it is something that we need to avoid. We, we need to not address it. But is it in any of the creeds? No. How about the Athanasian Creed? Definitely not. No, no. I'm, is it addressed? Yeah. Okay, what's the Athanasian Creed say? If you don't believe this. <laughs> Whoever wills to be saved. Must believe this. Right. What does it say about everlasting punishment? You got a copy of it? Look it up. Look it up. Actually, I will say the Athanasian Creed is probably my favorite. Really? Yeah. Because of how, because I mean, I understand why the, the two before it are really, you, the Nicene, and the Apostles' Creed are used more often, but I like the Athanasian Creed because of how specific it gets. I mean, it had to get specific, but. 
It's in the second line. Whoever does not keep the whole of the creed will perish forever, perish eternally. It's, it's pretty, pretty clear uh, because it opens that way, you know, like at, very, at the very beginning. Um, and then it, you know, concludes that if you don't believe mm-hmm. this, you, you can't be saved. And they're pretty clear that salvation is an eternal thing here. A lot of these men didn't have issues with creating, I said, in and out groups. That's, you know, if any, anybody's taking a conflict resolution. Yeah. It's like everything about us, we don't like this idea of in and out. We don't like this idea of um, two groups where one is right and one is wrong. We, what is it, two podcasts ago, uh, myself and Alex made direct reference to this, like inclusivity yeah. is king. It is, it is rule. It is the religion of our age. Yeah. I, I think universalism is the balm for the theologian. It, the, theologians turn to universalism mm-hmm. to kind of soothe the severity of scripture. And I say that with respect for guys like William Law and Gregory Vanessa and et cetera, uh, you know, the group we, we mentioned already. But I think the scripture is pretty clear. Uh, Jude says that the punishment of eternal fire is real that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone is a temporal type of eternal punishment in the lake of fire and brimstone. John brings that up in in the Revelation. He does that. In Matthew 25, the Lord is clear that um, the eternal fire was created by God for the devil and his angels. It was not intended for humans. So here, I think if you want to start getting into some more theodicy, like in a good way, how do we give an argument for God's justice? God did not make hell for humans. He made it for the devil and his angels. And humans are there because they choose not to be saved. And when you take that into consideration for the millions of people who've never adequately heard the gospel, go look at Romans 2, where Paul talks about the Gentiles who do not have the law still have the law on their heart, the Mm -hmm. conscience. When they violate conscience, they're already now being condemned by sin and that innate understanding, the light has shone on all men, John says. And that people, commentators have long understood that to be the light of conscience. The gospel is the proclamation that you can be forgiven and your conscience can be healed and you can be reconciled to God. See, that's the starting point. Do we start with the belief that we're alienated from God and need to be saved? Mm-hmm. Or do we start from the belief that we're already saved and we choose to be fallen? And, 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 yeah. Yeah. We go into Augustine's belief and, and even Irenaeus for that matter. And, and really looking through universalism, I think I can understand. You said it was the balm of the theologians. When you're discussing these things, especially from a philosophical level and you're talking about the OOG God, like I can understand where a lot of this comes in and where it's argued and where the philosophy begins to kind of take over. How do we reconcile these things? But I think on a more pragmatic and practical sense that we see is this idea of like soft universalism. And that is, well, yeah. I, I go to church once every, you know, so I'll, I'll make it, what do they call them? CEO Christians, Christmas, right. Christmas, Easter only. Right. Are you a Christian? Right. Yeah, I go to church Christmas and Easter. <laughs> See, I'm a CEO Christian. Yeah, yeah. And this idea that, well, I, I, you know, believe these things. I don't have to do anything else. And that somehow we look at these, like the, the goodness, the holiness, the, 
all the aspects of God completely wrapped together. And we think that somehow that is worthy to him. Yeah. Yeah. And so like a lot of, I think the, the universalism, like, oh, I'm against that. And I think a lot of even Christians would be like, me too. Like you have to believe in Jesus. It's through Jesus. But we see the soft universalism that is creeped into American culture in which we just accept everything. And right. we can do what we want. You do what I like. You do what you want. I do what I want. And it really is a soft universalism, if not a, a total universalism, uh, and, well, and how it's yeah, actually it's, acted it's out. It's not denomination specific. I mean, there are some pretty significant Roman Catholic leaders who are saying that we can have reasonable assurance that hell will be emptied. I mean, this is this is spreading across the gamut, and I understand that idea because it's a terrible idea to think that you could be in eternal punishment. But that's clearly what the scripture is teaching mm-hmm. and it teaches it and you know it's all through the revelation right and so people will say well the revelation is an apocalyptic text you can't appeal to the revelation for this okay well let's grant your argument i don't but for the argument's sake you know <laughs> let's grant that we will ex- we will excise the book of revelation from the covenant or from the canon or you know we'll we'll take another approach and say it's all just apocalyptic and you can't understand it so we we practically can't use it then you've got to go and you've got to deal with Paul and how often Paul and the other New Testament writers, but Paul more, more so than the others, because he's written more, right? Letters anyway. Uh, Paul contrasts, or it's a juxtaposition, I guess, is a better way of saying it, eternal destruction with eternal life. Mm-hmm. So if eternal destruction isn't true, eternal life isn't true. He parallels them because you exist forever in one of those two conditions. I mean, he, he says uh, in 2 Thessalonians um, about those who don't believe the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So he's talking there about it being eternal and everlasting. You know, in Romans 6, when he talks about, you know, the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. So he's contrasting again, death and life. He does this all through his letters. When, when the Lord preaches about hell, I've already mentioned it, he talks about it being an everlasting fire, an unquenchable fire. It's supposed to be terrifying. And we live in a, a um, well, let me, let me parallel it this way. Almost all of us eat meat. But almost all of us don't kill the meat. We don't actually kill the animal. It's like how many kids, when they realize that chicken nuggets are getting at the fast food place, have come from actual chickens, and they, they have a hard time with it, unless they've grown up around it, recognizing that this is food. That's why they're doing this fake meat stuff, you know? Like, they're able to get away with this because the population for so many years now yeah. has not been accustomed to actually killing something to eat it. It's too brutal, right? It's like, it, like it's so brutal, you can't let kids see the death of an animal on television. So, is it... I don't know if this is the right word. It's like a censorship, that stuff. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, they just figure it's, it's too mature. Oh, it's just it's too much, too graphic. So this, this it speaks to, to the effeminization, mm-hmm. not feminine. They're not the same, but the effeminization of the culture. And this is where universalism is the balm, the balm of the theologian because it starts to give them an out so they don't have to talk about the justice and the wrath of God. Because the people who, and, and who, who are in hell, who have chosen not to believe, not to obey the light of their conscience, are choosing not to be saved. 
they would choose to be saved if being saved meant they could do what they wanted. And this takes us into the very bad gospel that's preached that in many ways is an anti-gospel that says all you've got to do is confess Christ. Jesus died for you, therefore you won't suffer. He suffered for you, so you have no suffering. You have, in that, in that theological schema, you have separated, you have sundered, you have divorced the body from the head so that they're, they're, not, they're not ontologically one. When really what the gospel says and the church fathers and, and the, every good preacher since have said, when you come to Christ and are incorporated into him by baptism, now you participate with him both, both in his suffering and in his resurrection. Right. Right? There's a significant difference there. And, and universalism wants to appropriate the victory that Christ secured by his incarnation and his path and his, his passion and his resurrection. They want to appropriate that for the entire cosmos. But I don't think that takes into consideration that God gave us free agency. And I realize we can get into two, two debates about you know predestination and how free is the will and the bondage of the will and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's, that is a, would be a topic for us to get into at some point. But ultimately, whatever God does with his eternal decrees is what he does You know, for all of our Calvinists out there. There you go. God's got yeah. his eternal, eternal stuff. And, and here's the thing about all that eternal decreeing. We don't know anything about it. He's not revealed it to us. So everything that we would take, we would start talking about it becomes speculation. And I realize that those who hold to those opinions are probably typing an email to me right now that that's not true. <laughs> we, we could talk about the different uh, theories on election, you know, how that works out. But God does not elect and save against our will. Even a good monergist will tell you that. He'll say he'll change your will. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying we don't have time to get into that because we probably have a third of the audience who doesn't, they don't know what monergism is. And we, we don't have time to get into that right now. Universalism is not taking into an account the will as it should, as they should. Now they say they will. They'll say that the will is gradually won over by the love of God because the love of God is ultimately irresistible grace. No, no, you're choosing not to serve the Lord forever. Well, the the other part of like the Apostle Paul, which I can't help but think about, is how many times he tells people, people that do these things will not enter the kingdom of God. Like he says that in multiple places. He talks about how they're two different. In the Galatians chapter five, he talks about the the life of the spirit and the stuff of the flesh, and how they're two completely different. And those who participate in these things will not enter the kingdom of God. He says that multiple times too. So I don't, like, it's funny how they talk about that there is a litany of people out there who maybe it's their balm, but like you talk about, you talk about this in church like a couple weeks ago, about wrestling with the word, especially the bitter parts of the word. And that, that, but that's a part of it. It pierces you. And it pierces beyond the point of your comfort comfortability. It pierces the uh, this this thin veneer of false comfort, right? That we that that we build up, not because Christ told us to put it there, but we put it up there because we think it is God. We think it's what God wants us to. And then, but God's truth and God's word cuts in such a way to where it's like, no, this is I'm not like that. 
I'm this way, you know? So it's, but it, but it's obviously it's very pointed. And I mean, it's a, it's a hard process for anybody, but it's what everybody, all, all of us as Christians have to do. And that's kind of what Adam's point was earlier is the whole of scripture is kind of like, you can't pick and choose different pieces of the text. You have to like, let the whole of scripture kind of like, and sit with it and go with it on his journey in every step of the way. Like, and I think a part of this universalism, which while I understand logically how they can get to the point, there are parts of it that make me feel uncomfortable. Like when I came to Christ, I mean, I wasn't trying to get fire insurance, but I re- recognized pretty quickly mm-hmm. from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that like, if I keep going down this pathway, I'm not going to be with Christ. Like, and he got made it really clear to me, like specific. He was like, hey, you keep going that way. That's, that's not going to be good for you. Like you're going to, you know, so, so I mean, but, but I guess just the reality of hell, like hit me in that moment, like when that happened with me. And so like, but when you realize that, you, but you talk about also with the Apostle Paul, and I'm only really highlighting this point because I didn't realize it was there. Um, how Paul highlights the reality of uh, how, yeah, there's eternal life, but on the opposite end, there, there's something else there too. Like if you don't receive the eternal life from Christ, you're receiving a, a different form of it. Well, and I think that even leads us into just the idea of cheapening baptism. So what they're saying is that eventually the love of God will win them over, but we look at what is actually happening in baptism and that there there are real effective things happening. Like baptism has efficacy. So when we we come in faith and baptism, we bring, you know, we're we're like, we're bringing our, our few pieces of bread and our few fish and the Lord does the rest. But even the whole idea of the regeneration of baptism and what that does to the will and what that does to who we are, there's a changing, um, a, a real change um, in who we are. And this, this whole idea of essentially through hell having essentially the same effect as baptism, I, I have issue with that. And then the other aspect... Um, you know, there, there's something more happening. Like there's a, there's a changing of the will. And um, specifically, you know, as, as we're doing this podcast, I'm, I'm learning. Father Darrell might know all the answers for stuff, uh, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know all the answers. And so exp- specifically when we were going through and we were talking about purgatory and the idea of purgation and that there are things that have to be burnt off of me or the idea of like, God is holy, God is perfect and he in every single aspect even beyond my imagination. And so just the the idea that even like the believer through a, a life of follow, following Christ and even though there's an idea of purgation happening during life like we are burning we're setting those things up through sanctification. The idea of even how can I like today I die today. There are things that I know I am not perfect. I, I wish I was. The Lord is working with me. And I think if we're all honest, we'll, we'll we, come to the same we conclusion. We know you are. We know you are. Okay. You guys okay. can lie to me. I appreciate that. Um, but, but if God is truly, perfectly holy, how can I stand before him today? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's sanctification. Like, I, I, there, there's, there's, a, there's obviously a process. There, there's there. a judgment seat. Um, I, you know, but this idea that you know, you just go from I denied Christ my entire life to all of a sudden, oh no, versus someone who is in the church has gone through the waters of baptism, is is involved in the sacramental life of the church, like truly seeking and living into what Christ has for us as believers in the full life of the church. And I'm even like, even they are going to have to go through it. So you're saying you can deny Christ your entire life. And somehow his overwhelming love, like I, I, I just in many ways I struggle with it because I feel like it mocks the holiness of God. Yeah, and who He is, His His holiness. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, let me let me pull this around then to what do our formularies say? Because we went to the creed, you know, we referred mm-hmm. to the creed, um, specifically not about about hell, but about whether or not it's forever. Right. And this is an important point because. You know, in the 39 articles, we do mention that Christ descended into hell. And that does not mean he descended to a place of torment. It just means he went to be amongst the dead. Because hell in Old English is Hades. Mm-hmm. It's Sheol. Sheol, yeah. Once again, we talk about that in we, that we podcast. We it's did. almost as like if you listen to that, that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, so he, he descended to be amongst the dead. We referred to the Athanasian Creed where it's pretty clear that unless you believe this whole faith, you know, uh, the whole Catholic faith, you can't be saved, right? I mean, that, that's, that's very clear. Um, and we cited the, the second, st- second sentence in that creed. Um, Everyone who does not keep it whole and undefiled without doubt shall perish everlastingly. So the fathers are, are, of, of that creed are pretty clear, right? Um, but in the prayer book, the prayer book, Hell, is mentioned um, almost none times, almost zero times, unless it's in reference to the creed and Christ's descent to it. Yes. Reference to the creed, not Christ descending to the creed, but Christ descending to hell as the creed says. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the catechism, and from the, the one that came out uh, recently from the ACNA to be a Christian, we have hell mentioned only one time when it's not in reference to the creeds. And it's uh, from this, uh, this question, how should you understand Jesus's future judgment? Question 79. The answer is all people, whether living or dead, shall be judged by Jesus Christ. Those apart from Christ will receive eternal rejection and punishment in hell, while those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing. Notice the verb there, receive. Mm-hmm. Right, so that that's an important point. Um, so let me let's kind of close it out here with this this point. Hell, the Lord talked about it a lot. He preached about it a lot. So even though we don't have it all over our formularies, we do have it in the Gospels. We have it in Scripture, and the Scripture is above our formularies. And there's an important part here because our formularies shape our church around. Scripture. Mm-hmm. Scripture is the, the pinnacle, if you will. Scripture, uh, scripture in the Eucharist, Scripture in the sacrament. Um, but as the Scripture is read, the doctrine and teaching of hell from the lips of Jesus are read all throughout the year when he brings up the topic. And it's our responsibility as ministers of the gospel to share what the Lord says about hell as often as we need to. But we should take a cue from our formularies that the emphasis of the gospel is not hell. 
the emphasis of the gospel is reconciliation and redemption. And this is where knowing where somebody's coming from and their misunderstood views of God and, and wrath are very important. If you believe that God is vindictive and that there's something in his character that is not loving, as we say in the, the Ash Wednesday collect, he hates nothing that he has made, you will gravitate towards universalism because you see there a God of love whom you have been denied through poor teaching. That, that, that uh, base error leads into a further error. And so the discipleship that we need to foster has got to be more comprehensive and more total. And I say that you know, with nothing but respect for some of those leaders I've mentioned already who held to a kind of universalism, whom I do not think had a misunderstanding of God's nature and character. I think that they took to themselves a private judgment that they have to give the Lord, you know, to give an account to him over. I think it's significant that Gregory of Nyssa, who is a universalist, is selected to be the first bishop leading the council. Now, granted, he has to like shout out, throw me in the sea like Jonah. Not nice, not it's not nice, it's Constantinople uh, one, I believe. So those are important parts that important points. Our formularies are emphasizing the redemptive nature of the gospel. So even the question comes up, what is the principal authority that Christ has given, you know, the bishops and the priests, but to forgive sin, Mm -hmm. not to bind people in it. Mm -hmm. You're already bound in it. You don't need any authority to be bound in sin. What you need (laughs) is authority to be freed from it. And so we go into universalism and conversely, we'll go into annihilationism. Because we are taking it upon ourselves to become the judge about who is in heaven and who is in hell. And thankfully, as you said a little while ago, that's not our decision to make. Yeah. The Lord makes that decision. We have to tend to the things that have been revealed to us. And when the whole New Testament is clear about eternal fire and everlasting pain and damnation, while we may want to work on the metaphor of worms and fire and darkness and gnashing of teeth, we cannot do so to undersell and to under underemphasize what those images and pictures mean. So I, if I were to talk to a universalist who was like Mother Teresa, I would, I would plead with them to not hold to that opinion. And they would probably not point to their own sanctity as, as an argument because that would make them unsanctified. But I would be cognizant of their sanctity while they're telling me their opinion. You understand mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and we can't let sanctity, as powerful as it is, move us from something that's clearly revealed that the whole church has agreed upon. So this, I'm, I'm reminded of this, uh, it's either a proverb or something, but Father Mike Capala always says this in my conversations with him. He always says, uh, what has been revealed is unto us, but the secrets belong to the Lord. That's actually Deuteronomy 29, 29. Okay. Yes. That's, I, in, that's in the Bible. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. See, like the Old Testament references have been going crazy this past week. That's okay, buddy. It's but right. I mean, yeah, but what you're saying is true. Like what's clearly been revealed. Obviously, one of the good things about our formularies and a lot of the prayer book is it leads you to the road of repentance. It leads you to a road where you're like, you're reconciling yourself to God based upon you know, confession, general confession, and then obviously we have confession, you know, as necessary, 
you know, for people when they need it. Yeah. But like, that's what it's, it's all leading towards that. And that's, that's a healthy place to be. Michael Ramsey, Archbishop Michael Ramsey is still one of my favorite theologians, hands down. Some of the stuff that he, he puts pen to paper to is just phenomenal. Origin is another one. Um, he's just, he's a, a brilliant guy. But I think on these points, if they did legitimately hold to universalism, and I'm not convinced that they did, mm-hmm. I think what they're doing is leaving the door open that God might decide to do that. I, that's beyond what's revealed. There's no way to go one way or the other with it. What is revealed is that there is damnation and there is a hell of fire that's everlasting. Um, so if people are going to hold to universalism, I'm going to, it, it, no matter their sanctity, I'm going to appeal to you. Do not hold to that position because it's going to give people a false hope. Right? Right. And right. in the same way, I'm, not going, I'm going to appeal to the annihilationist. Do not hold to that position because you're telling people they can be as wicked as they want to be and their death will be the end of themselves and they can handle that because they'd rather give in to their sinful passions now. Mm. So let me ask you this. Do you, like, I'm thinking about this. It's really a simple question. Uh, basically, do you think that in like the effect of Christianity, like we were talking about earlier this morning, Christianity going from just being Christianity to Christianities has made an impact on this conversation. Like, yeah, because you know the council never condemns Gregory of Nyssa. They don't call the man to it. They don't call him before a council to condemn him for his universalism. They don't do that. Now that, they do that to Origin for that and a couple other issues. Long after he's gone, William Law is never called 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 to an account for universalism. Um, but these guys were not messengers of universalism either. Mm-hmm. It was a private opinion that they were holding that they said may be the case. I think law is a little bit stronger than the other guys. Um, and as I've already said, I will appeal to anyone not to hold to this position. It's going to affect you in all the wrong ways. It's not going to give you a more profound respect for the love of God. It's not going to do that. If it did, Jesus wouldn't talk about hell the way that he does. Because he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Um. So I, that's kind of where I would, I would go with that. Now, Bishop Robert Barron, who's a huge Roman Catholic uh, leader, influencer right now across social media, he quotes uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, I believe, with, we have the reasonable hope that go- hell will not be forever. And you hear how he's, he's riding the line there. He's still confessing the, cre- the, the Roman Catholic doctrine that hell is forever, but I can have hope that God will somehow rescue everybody from it. Well, I think we all would like to hope that, that even the most wicked God can somehow or another, in something he's not revealed, decide to change that. But if you spend your time theologically dealing with speculation that you have no scriptural warrant for, you will fall into an error that is very, very, very unhelpful and destructive. That's why the scripture in Deuteronomy, it's hard. Yeah. So I appeal to my friends who may be universalists, please, please reevaluate that. Please go and, and start researching more the nature and the character of God and trust the Lord Jesus to make those judgments that only he can make. Indeed. Well, that's it for today. Um, if you have any further questions, I know even if you have, uh, you know, nasty grams for me, you can email them to uh, Father Daryl at uh, Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L at ascensionwv.org. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. 
And I'm Daryl. 